Hello, church family. Uh, it is a privilege for me to introduce our guest speaker uh, this morning. Uh, he's, his name is Han Cho. He's one of the lay elders at Grace Community Church. Um, he, he and I actually served together at Crossroads together, which is the college and career ministry. And it's always a joy to be able to hear him, whether in the context of the Q&A or discipleship groups. Um, but it's always a blessing to me to be able to, to hear from Han. Um, I think some of you who have gone to Shepherd's Conference, uh, you know what it's like when there's the, the elder panel, the lay elder panel in particular, and Han is there. It's usually packed, and we just love hearing from not just him, but the other lay elders as well. Um, so he's actually taught a lot, not just um, at the Shepherd's Conference, but throughout the church there. Um, so if you're interested in some of the messages that he's taught in the past, you can just go to their website, just look him up. He has a lot of issues that he, t- he touched on, particularly things that are worldview type things, whether it's social justice issues or, or political things. He's really good at trying to recalibrate our minds to think about things biblically. And uh, he was with us yesterday, and we had a great time at the men's conference. And uh, if you're not, if you weren't able to attend uh, that yesterday, I would highly encourage you to listen to uh, the messages online. Uh, with that said, uh, let's give a warm welcome to our guest speaker, Han Cho. Um, I'm removing my mask because I believe it's important for the sake of preaching and teaching for you to be able to see my face, but if it gives you any additional comfort, I hope uh, I am healthy. I have been healthy for all of September, uh, most of August, and I uh, have chock full, my body is chock full of COVID antibodies, so um, I bring you greetings from the elders of Grace Community Church, and in particular, my dear friend, your dear friend, Carl Hargrove. It is my absolute joy to be with, here with you all. Um, I really leaped at the chance to join you when my friend, your pastor, Ray Fung, invited me. And uh, since then, I've greatly appreciated getting to know Pastor Henry, Pastor Roger. I was also so incredibly blessed by the men's conference team of Ed and Jimmy and Young. Uh, there, there was just an instant kinship and brotherhood when I met all of these men. And everybody here has treated me with such warmth and hospitality And now it is my privilege to open the word of God. Why don't we pray? Lord, we're so thankful for this time together. Thank you for this wonderful congregation, just full of love and warmth and unity. And uh, I'm just so grateful to you, Lord, to be here and for the privilege of opening your word. Father, I pray that every word I speak would be in accordance with your word and its principles and that the people would be teachable to your word. Thank you for this time. I pray you would give me just wisdom and strength as I uh, preach this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text this morning is Romans 14, and we'll be actually be talking about the whole chapter. And as always when discussing the Bible, context is very important. So first we'll talk about the context of the author, Paul, the greatest Christian missionary and church planter in church history. Such an amazing man. He wrote half of the books of the New Testament, and those are filled with just such rich and detailed and practical theology. And in particular, Paul wrote a number of key chapters that I would like to highlight. Our text today, Romans chapter 14, uh, he, he wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, he wrote 1 Timothy chapter 4, as well as the entire book of Galatians. 
So why am I highlighting these chapters specifically? And the answer is because all of these chapters relate to the concept of Christian liberty. So what is Christian liberty? Well, it could be defined any number of ways, but for our purposes here today, I'm going to define it as the freedom to make decisions which are neither commanded nor sinful. Again, the freedom to make decisions which are neither commanded nor sinful. My goal here, one of my goals, my primary goal, would be to explain the framework of this issue so that you can more easily spot it, hopefully, and to have a grid to help you process through it. The context here in terms of the book of Romans now. Romans was written to the church in, appropriately, Rome. Rome was a major cultural center for the entire country, the the Roman Empire at that time. It was the capital. It was a big city. It was a huge city, really. And and it was very wealthy. Of course, like all cities, it had its pockets of poverty and even, even abject poverty. But by and large, as a general matter, the city was very wealthy, especially compared to the rest of the empire. It was a very diverse city ethnic background, social class, uh, all kinds of different backgrounds were, were in Rome. It was a city that was obsessed with entertainment. And it was a city at this time that Paul wrote this letter that was containing very many new believers or relatively new believers that were learning to walk as Christians. Hmm, does any of this sound familiar? Certainly, We could say many of these same exact things about a city such as Los Angeles or San Francisco or New York today. So we continue talking about context, and let's talk about the chapter of Romans 14. And the chapter of Romans 13 obviously is led up to by the latter part of Romans 13. And so I'm displaying on the PowerPoint uh, the ending of Romans chapter 13, and I won't read it, but as as you look at that passage... Just to describe it a bit, leading into Romans 14, Romans 13, 8 through 14, generally speaking, describes the process of what's called sanctification. Sanctification meaning obeying God's commands out of love for God and therefore becoming more Christ-like over the course of time and fleeing from sin out of a love for God and then in that way becoming more Christ-like. Now, It may seem like an obvious question, but what do we mean by God's commands? Well, let me give you some examples. And this is certainly not a complete list, but just some examples. Matthew 22, 37, and he said to him, Jesus was speaking, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then two verses later, Matthew 22, 39, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Another verse that describes a command, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray. Without ceasing. And there's Philippians 4.4. 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And again, these are obviously only a, uh, just a handful of commands as examples. There are many, many more commands or imperatives described in Scripture. And I selected some of these because I want to highlight that it is impossible for us in our sinful fallen flesh, even as blood-bought believers, it's impossible for us to obey these commands perfectly here in this world. And we realize that. We, we can never do this constantly. We, we can't pray without ceasing. You know, we, we can't rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, he, he, there are times when we don't do that and when we fail. And, and in times like that, that is where we take such comfort in the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ, that we know that Jesus Christ 
came down to earth from heaven and lived a perfect and sinless life and, and, and was persecuted by sinful men and was nailed to a cross and crucified, taking upon himself the sins of all those who would ever believe, past, present, and future, that, that believe in him and, as Lord and Savior. And then he was buried and was raised on the third day, showing his victory over sin and death. And really, this concept, uh, I just love the song that we sang earlier, Grace and Peace, uh, and this, this lyric, Slaughtered lamb, what atonement you bring. The vilest sinner's heart can be cleansed, can be free. And that's the beauty of the gospel. And that, that is the comfort we take when we inevitably fail to live up to the commands in God's word even though that is certainly our striving. So, again, separate question. If sanctification is obeying God's commands out of love for God and fleeing from sin out of love for God, it may seem like an obvious question again, but what do we mean by sin? Well, I think there are different types of sin, or missing the mark, if you will. Uh, There would be explicit sin. This would be a very clear sin laid out in Scripture. And again, just to give you a few examples, uh, not a comprehensive list, we have the Ten Commandments as an example, with some debate perhaps over the Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath holy in the New Testament, New Covenant era. But the Ten Commandments are very clear in terms of some sins that we would commit, like murder or adultery. Another example, trying to add commands, man-made commands or sins to the Word of God is in itself a sin. And there are two verses that lay this out. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. And there's also 1 Corinthians 4, 6. So that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written, so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. Another example of an explicit sin described in Scripture would be wounding another brother's conscience. 1 Corinthians 8.12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Very crystal clear. I will give you another example of a type of sin. I would call it implicit sin. And this would be sin that's based on clear biblical principles and analogies. For example, let's, let's talk about like pirated movies or music or software. There's no scripture, obviously, that says, thou shalt not infringe copyright, right? But one of the Ten Commandments would be, thou shalt not steal. Stealing, by definition, is taking the property of another without right or permission. And even if some of these electronic goods might be very cheap to produce, there might be plentiful, and the owner might not even ever miss it, nevertheless... All that may mean is uh, perhaps at least petty theft on some level, but it is still stealing. That would be an example of implicit sin, copyright infringement. There's another type of sin that I'm going to talk about, and it's one that we're going to talk about quite a bit today. The notion of subjective sin. That is sin for one brother, but not another. Well, how can that be? Well, let's talk about Romans 14.23. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. This is part of the importance of listening to your own conscience. Now, again, we need to be careful not to wound or bind other people's consciences, but we should be heeding our own conscience. Sometimes these subjective sins 
are based on different understandings of Scripture. One example, head coverings. Now, I, for one, agree with my pastor, John MacArthur's position on this, that head coverings are not necessarily for today, but I know some extremely godly people, men and women, who disagree with that position. Another example, 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says to abstain from every form of evil. Some people understand that to mean something very broad. Some people understand that to mean something a bit more narrow. Let me give you another example. I always find this one fascinating. Bible smuggling. There are countries on this earth where it's forbidden to own a Bible or to import a Bible. And so there are people who have to, well, I, wanna, I don't want to violate that. But then there's people who feel, hey, the word of God needs to go out to the uttermost ends of the earth. So we're going to smuggle these Bibles in. Different people make, have different convictions about that. Sometimes these subjective sins are based on wrong understandings of Scripture, just to say it plainly. There are some people who believe that we need to adhere to the Old Testament dietary laws, even though Acts 10.13 clearly talks about, get up, Peter, kill and eat, and that it's not about what goes into you that pollutes you in terms of food. Another example I'm an ardent cessationist. There, there are people today who believe that the gift of tongues is for today, and that it means something other than actual understandable languages like it did in the description of the apostolic era in the New Testament. I would say that is understanding from a wrong understanding of Scripture. And sometimes these subjective sins are not based on Scripture at all. You have people that uh, might, might have certain music preferences. You know, oh, I don't like... Uh, heavy metal or rap music or rock music or, or whatever, but that's not in scripture at all. There are some people who are like, oh, well, uh, dancing, I, I, can't, I can't do dancing. I mean, certainly I cannot dance, let's just say, say it plainly, but people who would find it morally offensive to dance, as an example. Another example, oh, oh I am only going to read this translation of the Bible. That's not in itself a biblical concept, you know, just there's different translations that uh, some consider more or less accurate, but there's nothing that says, oh, I can only adhere to this translation. So even in those situations where people aren't basing these uh, conscience matters of subjective sin on a scripture at all, you know, they should still listen to their own consciences because it's dangerous not to, but our prayer is in situations like these where people have a wrong understanding of scripture or they're not applying scripture at all, our prayer would be that they would grow in their understanding, that they would perhaps mature in their understanding in certain ways and they will grow and that they will come to a greater knowledge and understanding of the word and hopefully that their conscience will follow. We want people's consciences to be well informed by the word of God and that should be our goal as we walk our Christian walks. So just to recap, three types of sin I've talked about here, explicit sin, implicit sin, and subjective sin. Now with that, let's go into our passage, Romans 14. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats 
does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to the Lord. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. You know, I could do half a dozen sermons on or more on Romans chapter 14, so this is truly just a big-picture overview. But as you consider the sweep of this first half of the passage of verses 1 through 12, what would you see as the overall theme? Well, I would submit to you that the theme is don't look down on your brother. We see it throughout the passage, but let's step through it and I'll highlight some quotes. Verse 1, now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Verse 4, who are you to judge the servant of another? Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? And verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Just as a reminder, this passage applies to matters of Christian liberty, the freedom to make decisions which are neither commanded nor sinful. We are not talking here about matters which are obviously sinful, such as murder or adultery. Sin like that needs to be confronted. Commands, clear commands like that need to be obeyed. We're not talking about that here. We're also not talking about matters which are commanded, such as, for example, the corporate gathering. For a bi- detailed biblical defense of this point, I would urge you to uh, listen to Professor Abner Chow's sermon, Why We Gather Together. It's uh, on the gracechurch.org website, and it was preached on August 23rd of 2020. Now, as I say this about the command to gather together in the corporate gathering, I want to say very clearly, I totally sympathize with people who are especially vulnerable or live with those who are especially vulnerable, staying away for a season. I'm not trying to set any hard timetables or deadlines, but at some point, I would entreat you to start asking yourself some heart questions. Am I genuinely reacting in fear or faith. If this virus becomes permanently endemic, and all signs are pointing to that being the case, by the way, am I going to live this way forever? Do I yearn to be back together with my brothers and sisters? I mean, speaking on that point, I love FaceTime or Zoom with my family when I'm traveling or apart, and even this very weekend, I've loved it, I've appreciated it. But it is no substitute for being with my family in person. You know that's true. So why would anyone feel differently about practicing the one another's in person with your beloved family in Christ? Has that somehow become 
non-essential or optional for you. 1 Thessalonians 2.17 is so powerful, so poignant. Paul writes, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Do we feel like Paul does about our brothers and sisters in Christ? And if not, why not? Again, I urge you, if you're, if you're questioning this or struggling with this, this issue, I would, uh, I would urge you to listen to that Abner Chow sermon. It's just so helpful. The man is just really, just a brilliant expositor. So again, we're not talking about matters which are clearly sinful, which should be confronted. We're not talking about matters which are commanded. But for matters of Christian liberty, for preference issues, do not look down upon your brother. That's the theme of this first half of Romans 14. So there is another concept when it comes to Christian liberty, and we see it in this first half, about who is the stronger brother or the weaker brother. And this this, uh, passage uses the term weak in faith. And this question arises sometimes when we talk about entertainment choices or use of social media. Who's stronger? Who's weaker? Well, I would submit to you that in some ways this passage almost says, who cares? Verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Either way, do not look down upon your brother, whether you're stronger or weaker. The Greek words here for stronger and weaker are dunamis and astheneo. Ability and inability. Capacity and incapacity. It's the same type of usage in 1 Peter 3.7 about women being the weaker vessel. That does not mean that they are somehow less valuable. I would argue that they are actually more precious in that way. Weaker does not mean morally inferior or inherently worse here. It just means capacity or incapacity. So much contempt, so much looking down on comes from potentially self-righteous views of oneself as strong and perhaps pitying views or condescending views of others as weak. And I know this because to my shame, I've done that from time to time in my own Christian walk. But do you really want to turn your view upside down on this? There are godly men, godly pastors that I know whose conscience would be bothered by riding in a car or taking a meeting with a woman, not his wife, alone. Now, there's technically no scripture against that, right? So is he being the weaker brother here? Or perhaps is he being the wiser brother here? Let me give you another example. Let's talk about a guy who smokes and spends a ton of cash on his own comfort. That has to be the weaker brother, right? Well, let me tell you a story. A young man asked what he should do about a box of cigars he had been given. The older man solved his problem. Give them to me, he said, and I will smoke them to the glory of God. How can that be? Well, unless you're addicted to it, smoking in itself is not a sin. Some people might say, oh, well, 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, in context, that verse is actually about sexual immorality. That verse does not prohibit that. It doesn't prohibit smoking. I mean, it certainly prohibits sexual immorality, but it doesn't prohibit smoking. It doesn't prohibit activities like riding a motorcycle or eating junk food, even if those actions might be unwise, potentially. 
Smoking might be gross or foolish, perhaps. We have studies now that we didn't have decades or centuries ago. But it's not sin, again, unless you're addicted. Let's keep talking about this man. On another occasion, the older man was criticized for traveling to meetings first class. His antagonist said, what are you doing up here? I'm riding back there in third class, taking care of the Lord's money. The older man replied, and I am up here in first class, taking care of the Lord's servant. Even Jesus and the disciples took a break. I mean, I mean look, Mark 6, 31 and 32. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. So who is our weaker brother here? Well, he is none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, he's been called. So my question for you, what do you do when you see a Christian who's different? Maybe this Christian smokes or has a bunch of piercings or tattoos. Do you look down on that Christian? Be honest. Be honest and maybe repent based on this passage. Don't look down on your brother. Remember, Christian liberty here is the freedom to make decisions that are not commanded or sinful. And as we remember the different categories for these types of Christian liberty, Christian liberty decisions, you know, sometimes it can get a little complicated because foolish actions can sometimes look like implicit or subjective sin. Proverbs 28.19 would be one example. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have poverty in plenty. Empty pursuits is sometimes translated as chasing fantasies. So clearly we see from Proverbs that may not be the wisest course of action. It might result in poverty. But is it sin? I don't think so. Matthew 15.1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, that might be a little disgusting. Might be foolish or silly. But is it sin? No. Now, I should qualify. Too much of this type of foolishness can often show a heart of rebellion or an unteachable spirit. I preached yesterday at the men's conference on the proverbial fool, the fool from Proverbs. And, you know, that's certainly something that we need to avoid. You know, nobody wants to be the proverbial fool from Proverbs. But at the same time, we need to just remember that it doesn't necessarily mean that they are sinning if they take a foolish action. Because if we're honest with ourselves, we've all taken foolish actions before in the past. And we will until glory, most likely. Now, someone also might choose to use their Christian liberty as a covering for evil or as an opportunity to indulge the flesh, which is also sin, and I'll show you some verses on that later. So, of course, we're, we don't want to condone that. In those types of cases, I think it's fair if you want to raise a concern to that person, especially if you love that person or you have a relationship with that person. If you have some proof or evidence of, of actual sin, you confront them by all means. But ultimately, for these matters of Christian liberty, whether it's foolishness, wisdom, or something neutral, that person is accountable before God. 
himself, as we saw in this first half of Romans 14. To add to the confusion, sometimes neutral actions that you take in Christian liberty can, can sometimes look foolish or even potentially like a subjective sin. Video games would be one example. You know, you've got, you see a person, oh, you're, you're playing so many video games. Well, again, if that person is not addicted, maybe that's not a sin. Maybe that's just a neutral use of liberty, even if it might not be especially profitable or a good idea. Or watching TV or, or Netflix would be another example. I do appreciate the words of my pastor who said, uh, John MacArthur, who said, we should all strive to be weaning yourself off of being entertained as a matter of self-discipline. It's a matter of Christian growth, of fruit of the spirit, of self-control, and, and you know, certainly of being a more productive, profitable uh, member of the kingdom of God and working for the kingdom of God. That those, are, those are good things and good goals. Too much entertainment, again, could show signs of enslavement to it or signs of laziness. I talked about the sluggard from Proverbs yesterday at the men's conference as well. So, of course, we don't want to be that. But again, generally, these neutral actions may actually not be sin at all. And again, sometimes when we're talking about these categories, it can be complicated because wise actions that you take can sometimes almost seem like they're commanded, like, oh, reading spiritual books. That's great, but it may not be commanded. Or developing a useful skill. Again, great, wonderful, profitable, not necessarily commanded. So there are quite a few categories that we're talking about here, and later we'll talk a little bit more about how to work some of this stuff out. But regardless, the message I really want to drive home in this first half of Romans 14 is don't look down on your brother. That's the recap of this passage, this part of the passage. Let's move on to the latter half of the passage, Romans 14, 13 through 23. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. As we consider the sweep of this entire passage, what would you say the overall theme is? Again, I would submit to you, that the theme of this portion, this latter half of Romans 14, is don't cause your brother to stumble. Again, we see it throughout the passage. Let's step through it, and I'll highlight some quotes. Verse 13, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Verse 18, for he who in this way, referring to not causing a brother to stumble, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. 
Verse 20, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things in need are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. And verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. And again, this is the verse that highlights the concept of subjective sin that we've talked about. So what does it mean to cause your brother to stumble? Well, if we look at verse 13, it says not to put an obstacle or obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. And if you look at that Greek word for put, it means to place or lay or set a, a deliberate act, something that you intentionally expose to another believer that causes that believer to sin. I want to be clear, it is not an innocent act or, or something that's completely unrelated to another believer. Let me give you an example. Let, let's say you're trying to encourage your brother. Like this brother was just responsible for organizing a big event. He said, you know, brother, that event was great. It was really beneficial to me. Thank you so much. And the brother, whoa, 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 whoa. You're causing me to stumble into pride right now. You're like, okay, brother. <laughs> I was just trying to encourage you. You know, I'll, I'll keep that in mind the next time. I'll, I'll, maybe I won't encourage you. But, you know, at the same time, your motive was to encourage the brother. It was innocent. You certainly weren't intending him to cause to stumble into pride. Again, now informed, you may react a little bit differently as you get to know that brother better. But that's not your intention. You're not intentionally causing this brother to stumble. Let me give you another example. You're just standing in a part of the sanctuary, minding your own business, and you see a stranger or, or someone maybe you've met one time rush up to you. Excuse me, do you eat pork? Why do you ask? <laughs> you know, you know you, it's, it's perfectly okay. I'd prefer not to say. I'd prefer not to answer. The scriptures praise the concept of discretion. And again, this is, I briefly referred to this yesterday. Uh, there are a number of proverbs that talk about the importance of discretion, about when to speak and when to hold your tongue. You know, there are verses in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Thessalonians 3 that praise the notion of minding your own business, Right? I'm not saying that you have to be secretive about everything, but at the same time, not everybody needs to know everything. I don't mean to make light of this. It's a very serious issue. Matthew 18.6 would say that, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So, you know, as we consider this, maybe it's not a pork interrogator, but perhaps it is a pointed question about entertainment choices. You know, and I want to compare a question out of the blue about, hey, what, are your, what do you do for entertainment? What, what, do you, what do you read? What do you listen to? That's one thing, person rushing across the sanctuary, but it's another thing entirely if you are overtly inviting a new brother that perhaps you just met to join you at an edgy movie. They're very different scenarios. one is going to be much more likely to cause a brother to stumble, potentially. And on that point, when is it more likely for you to actually cause someone to stumble, cause them to sin, perhaps? Is it more likely with a complete stranger across the sanctuary? Or is it more likely with your spouse, or your roommate, or your family member, or your best friend? You know the answer to this. It's, it's the latter. 
Ray had mentioned, I was, I was involved in some capacity to ministry alongside or among single people for 13 years. And it was a, no, a decent number of times that we saw how a guy or a gal was dating someone that they really, really liked. And that would cause them actually to stumble in some of these areas due to direct or indirect pressure from that other person. And it was, it was hard to see sometimes, even after warning. So as we consider these concepts, I want to illustrate another concept to you, describe it, and it's known in some circles as the tyranny of the weaker brother, which is using one brother's sensitive conscience as a weapon against other people, essentially. Oh, you're not wearing a skirt, you're wearing jeans? You're not wearing a head covering? Wait, wait, you watch Star Wars? Harry Potter? Remember, subjective sin based on your own conscience is for yourself. Choosing to boycott a place, for example, that you object to their business practices. Oh, I don't go shop at Target ever or something like that. That's fine for you. But it's a very different thing if you start insisting that everybody else boycott Target alongside you. Choosing to homeschool for your own family, hey, that's great. Compared to perhaps being a homeschool evangelist. And as I say that, I also want to make clear, uh, you know, just public schools today are very different from the public schools that I uh, went to and was familiar with as a child 30, 40 years ago in Indiana. So you have to be very careful. But at the same time, you know, there are people who take it so far that this is the only choice when I don't see that in Scripture. It's really a situation where, you know, if you don't want to read or watch Harry Potter as an example, then don't do that. But you can't force others to do what you want to do. And in fact, by trying to impose your conscience on them, or by other people trying to impose their conscience on you, they are actually the ones who are sinning. We already talked about how it's an explicit sin to add to the word of God. Deuteronomy 12.32, 1 Corinthians 4.6 would outline that. We see this principle in Matthew 23.4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Speaking of, these are the Pharisees that were doing that. Or Acts 15.10. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? This is, in this contest, speaking of circumcision of Gentiles. And, you know, they're, they're, that was the nature of the Galatian heresy, actually, was people saying, oh, in order to be saved, you also need to be circumcised. That is pharisaical. This concept is illustrated so well in 1 Corinthians 10. I'll read the second half of verse 29 and verse 30. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness... Why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks in these matters of Christian liberty? So if you see someone trying to uh, tie up heavy burdens upon you with extra-biblical commands or extra-biblical convictions of their own that they're trying to put on you, if a brother is sinning in that way, you may need to show him his fault in private. And in a well-taught church like this one, you could also suggest a meeting with your pastors or elders 
It's their joy to shepherd you. So I know we chuckled a bit when we were talking about uh, skirts and jeans and Harry Potter, but you really want me to get into your kitchen? How about masks? How about vaccines? Now, I'm not talking about the corporate assembly here because you are well led by pastors and elders who love the Lord and his word and you can trust that they will make the best decisions for this local congregation, which they're going to know better than anyone. But I'm talking about in your own lives, in your own hearts. Are you trying to enforce upon other people your own subjective convictions about a matter of Christian liberty? And I can promise you, by the way, that there, there is no mention of vaccines at all in the Bible. Nor are masks mentioned in the Bible within the n- nature of our current context. So that puts them squarely in the realm of Christian liberty. Now, there are certainly arguments a person could make by implication or by analogy, but I'll tell you, I could make many counter-arguments right back at you. And to be clear, I'm not even mad at masks or vaccines. If you really want to know what I think, feel free to ask me sometime. Let me give you an example of one of these arguments that people try to make. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor is one of the most abused arguments that I've seen over the last 18 months in many of these different contexts. Of course, you should love your neighbor in the way that you see fit. That's your own stewardship. That's your own calling. That's your own Christian liberty to decide how to do that specifically. But that is very different from pointing the finger at your brother and saying, you need to love your neighbor the way that I see fit or else I'm going to accuse you of not loving your neighbor. That can turn into pharisaical legalism and emotional blackmail very quickly. I mean, think about it. It would be like the notion of spending your own money or time. Well, here's how I think you should spend your money. Here's how I think you should spend your time. Here's how you should prioritize your deeply felt causes. That's not appropriate, and you know it. Even as we think about this, you know, you might have one person say, well, I'm still going to love my neighbor's health by wearing a mask. Hey, good for you. Another person might say, I'm going to love my neighbor's freedom by not wearing a mask. Remember, masks and vaccines, these are areas of Christian liberty. So choices and preferences are allowed to differ. So maybe the best thing to do is to try to take the temperature down. Remember our guidelines from Romans 14. Don't look down upon your brother and don't cause your brother to stumble. I am not going to look down on my brother by turning masks or vaccines into some kind of litmus test as to whether you're being a good Christian or not. I'm just not going to do that. Now, at the same time, if I can avoid causing a brother to stumble in a personal interaction that I have about this stuff, I will do my very best to avoid that. I don't want to cause my brother to stumble. And as long as that isn't turning into the tyranny of the weaker brother, look, I'm glad to serve. And on that point, so much of this can be benefited or even solved by humility. Let me give an example. Let's say you're holding an event and 
uh, th there's a person that calls you up and it's like, hey, thank you so much for your invitation to this event. You know, I just wanted to share with you, um, you know, I I'm a recovering alcoholic and, and it's really, really hard for me to be around alcohol. So I was just wondering, are you, are you happening to serve alcohol at this event? Uh, you know, it's your prerogative, I'm not trying to control you at all. I, I just want to know so that I can be equipped. Boy, I, I would be so sympathetic to a question like that. I, I would really feel for that brother. Who wouldn't want to try to find a way to accommodate an earnest, humble request like that? Humility asks, it doesn't demand. I could give you a different contrast of an example. Let, let's say there's a, there's a brother who uh, is caused to stumble into lust by the sight of an exposed ankle. Would it be appropriate for that brother to demand that the entire congregation full of women wear burkas? No. Maybe it would be far more appropriate for that brother to just look down. <laughs> and in an extreme case, maybe he needs to be led around by another brother until he's able to develop the maturity not to be caused to stumble into lust by the sight of an exposed ankle. This attitude of humility is so important for all of us. Think about it. Are you making other people around you listen to your music or see your modesty issues or you know, read your social media? Social media has just, it's really exploded this issue in a lot of ways. There's all kinds of stuff like broadcast and trumpeted on social media that I'm like, yeah, I don't know about that. So be aware of those things. Be aware of what you're saying to everybody, what you're eating, what you're doing, what you're wearing, what you're inviting people to do, what events you host, what you listen to and watch, what you do with your spare time. These are all things to be thinking about, to be intentional about. Are you filtering all of that through a Christian worldview, through a Christian lens? If you're not sure about a certain situation, maybe you can ask some polite questions. Hey, do you have any dietary restrictions? It's become a totally normal question to ask. It's very polite a lot of times. So maybe you won't serve that pork interrogator pork at dinner. So just to recap, again, this second half of Romans 14, don't cause your brother to stumble. And in a lot of ways, I want to say, it's not about necessarily standing on your rights. Verse 21 of Romans 14 says, It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. 1 Corinthians 8.10 says something similar. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. It is sin for you to cause others to stumble, to wound their conscience. 1 Corinthians 10.13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. <laughs> you know... It, if you happen to marry a vegetarian from deep conviction, congratulations, you're probably a vegetarian too now. <laughs> now, your brother is not only more important than you, we know that from Philippians 2.3, but your brother is also more important than non-believers. And I want to highlight that because I think in a lot of evangelicalism, they get it completely upside down. 1 Corinthians 10, 27 and 28 says, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. My pastor, John MacArthur, says, you're better off to offend the non-Christian. You have a far greater obligation to your brother. 
This is the family, folks. This is the kingdom. Far better to offend that unbeliever. And you know what that unbeliever will conclude? Those Christians love each other. Those Christians care for each other. If you offend your brother and don't offend the unbeliever, the unbeliever will conclude it's better to be an unbeliever. They treat you better. Don't offend a believer. So back off of that desire to reach out to that unbeliever for the sake of love to that brother and to make sure he doesn't stumble. Why? Because God, listen to this, is far more concerned about his own than those who aren't his own. They are his beloved sheep. And the reaching of those who aren't his own is dependent upon the virtue and the godliness and the character of those who are. And remember, they will know us by our love for one another, speaking of fellow believers. We know that is truth from Scripture. So in closing, for a Christian striving to grow in the Lord, what is this Christian liberty all about? Well, let me read to you something powerful from Psalm 119.45. And I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Speaking of the word of God, the precepts of the word of God. So then we look at the word of God for that question of how should I use my Christian liberty? What does the scripture say? Well, there's a great number of verses about that. First Peter 2.16, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Again, horrible thing to try to even countenance the idea of using your Christian liberty as a covering for evil. Jude 1, 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You can't turn the grace of God into license to do whatever you want. Galatians 5, 13. For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Don't use it for fleshly indulgence, just to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. Use it to serve. That's what the scriptures would have us do. That serving others is actually a command. 1 Peter 4.10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Use your spiritual gifts to serve one another, to love one another, to care for one another. As you're processing all of this, and I know there's a lot here, the solution is not to lock yourself in your room afraid of offending the weaker brother. My desire for you would be for you to think through lenses. So read this stuff, talk about this stuff, have conversations about your Christian liberty. Those chapters I mentioned, the book of Galatians, all of that, it's incredibly helpful in processing through Christian liberty. Because that's what the Christian life is about, is, is the, your walk is going to so often be in the context of living in community, living in discipleship. And I think it's all the more important to highlight these one another's during this era of isolation. Perhaps you're still not satisfied. Maybe you're still concerned that Christian liberty is just too complicated. And again, our two points from the message today are don't look down on your brother and don't cause your brother to stumble. But if you think about it, both of those areas are all about love for your brother, about sacrificing your own attitudes and actions. 
I mentioned Philippians 2.3 earlier. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And as we ponder this, as we try to even get this concept into a more graspable form, and I think this is, again, highlights the importance of context. Turn back to Romans 13, verses 9 and 10. And we're kind of coming full circle now. Romans 13, 9 and 10 states, The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Is that simple enough? Love your neighbor. That's what Christian liberty is all about. And again, to reiterate, you love your neighbor the way you think is best. While you let your brother love his neighbor the way that he thinks is best. Don't try to emotionally blackmail your brother to get him to do what you want or else. Don't try to graft your own convictions on matters of Christian liberty onto someone else. But if you love your own neighbor, motivated by a heart of love for God, then not only are we obeying the second and great commandment of love your neighbor, we're also obeying the first and greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you for your perfect word. We're so grateful to you for just the opportunity to gather together, just to hear the word of God. And Lord, um, I'm just so thankful for this congregation, just the evident love that they have for one another, just for the able leaders who are here, for the wonderful servants who are so sacrificial. What a joy it is to be among them, your people, God. And as we process through these matters of Christian liberty, I pray that we would do so with a spirit of charity, of graciousness, that we would never look down upon our brother for the use of their Christian liberty, that we would never cause our brothers to stumble in the use of our Christian liberty, that we would, in humility, consider others as more important than ourselves. Lord, when everyone is striving to do that, unity can only result. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.